This is Making Stitches. This week, Kathy Emmett, the textile artist behind Dear Emma Designs, talks to me about her inspiring surroundings in the Yorkshire Dales, tips for other creatives thinking about taking their hobbies to the next level, and her wonderful garden workshop where all the magic happens. I really, really love it, and I know I'm so lucky to have it. It's it, The photos you'll have seen of it, that isn't day-to-day. It's generally really really untidy lots and lots of piles of fabric strewn everywhere but I, I'm not I'm certainly not a mess uh, not a neat worker at all and I think a lot of people who deal in fabric especially they'll have their own stashes of fabric live in a permanent state of disarray really but that's, I think that's how we carry on being creative you, you can't can't be creative in a, in a tidy environment Hello and welcome to Making Stitches, a podcast celebrating crafts and the stories of the makers behind them. My name's Lindsay and this week we're hearing from a textile artist who specialises in applique and machine embroidery, who creates the most beautiful pictures of birds, flowers and quirky street scenes. Kathy Emmett, the artist behind Dear Emma Designs, works in her garden workshop in the Yorkshire Dales, producing pictures, bags and other items decorated with intricate stitching and applique. I came across Kathy's work after a blogger I read regularly spoke gushingly about her. I was blown away by her cute street scenes in particular. I was thrilled when she agreed to speak to me for making stitches and she began by explaining exactly what it is she does. Basically, I do, it's almost like making a collage, but in fabric. So I spend a lot of time um, hunting for tiny scraps of fabric, um, applying a a fabric glue, which comes in the form of sheets. So it's like a bonder web um, glue onto the back of those tiny snippets and then creating uh, a picture Once I've got the picture in place, then I use free motion machine embroidery to stitch in the detail, really. So combination of different coloured threads, um, depending on what it is I'm actually, um, what the actual picture is. If it's a more natural scene, I'll use uh, sort of more softer colours. But if it's a street scene, for example, I tend to use mainly black. But in a nutshell, that, that is really it, is creating a collage with tiny scraps of fabric. Um, there's no there's no other way to describe it really (laughs) (laughs) well that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it but actually to to see it it's it's truly artistic it's beautiful the pictures that you create and uh, I mean you've got two sides to your work from what I've seen you've got like you mentioned your street scenes which are kind of very graphic and um, almost uh, without wishing to <laughs> how do I phrase this correctly but almost like a cartoon really yeah. of, of a street uh, but then you've got your beautiful artistic pictures of birds and, and flowers and, and the natural world where, where do you get your artistic inspiration from? Um, so really the, the work comes from the inspiration comes from two different areas so Obviously, the natural world is is a big part of what I do. I would say it's probably sixty seventy percent of what what I focus on, um, and that's really from kind of encouraged by living where I live. I live just on the uh, border of the Yorkshire Dales, and 
the fields at the bottom of the garden are uh, pasture. It's all pasture land, so we've got a lot of lot of cattle. But as a result of them feeding off there, there's a lot of wildflowers that sort of pop up as well. Um, I also live on, on on a railway embankment um, and often trespass <laughs> along there. And at certain certain times of the year, so really sort of from springtime through to the end of summer, the flowers, the wildflowers you get there are amazing because they're so untouched and it's just nature taking over really. So I have loads of inspiration just, f- just from my back garden onwards. Um, garden birds are really what, I, I love I'm not particularly into any other sort of birds so seabirds that sort of thing I'm not really interested in those so much because I, I don't live in an area where there are them um so the natural world yes is a big one um it gets me to focus really more on being quite accurate so I want the image to be quite a likeness of what it is I'm trying to portray so shape and colour uh, are really important to me from that aspect um, and finding just the right shade of uh, I don't know of a brown uh, a brown fabric for a, a wren's wing is quite is quite an obsess uh, an obsession really so I want it to be fairly uh, you know a fairly good likeness but the other side of it is is the street scenes which is totally opposite so I think the reason I loved to do the street scenes is because um, I can be a lot more freer with the process and a bit more spontaneous with the designs and I can use the fabrics, the colours in the fabric a little bit more, can be led by those really more than getting hung up on a particular shape of a wing or a beak, you know, it's it's sort of more fabric pattern led work really and I tend to work at one end of the street and literally work to the opposite side it's quite an organic sort of method really but more just more freeing I think um and yeah so I I have tried to drop one or the other and really focus on for example the natural world over the street scenes but I sort of use the street scenes as a way as a as a way to counteract the the sort of I don't know the um the way that I have to be more focused, I suppose. It's just a bit more of a, a freeing situation. And both of them are equally as important from the customer's point of view because they get to see both, you know, both sides of the work. Um, so, yeah, that's. I think that's really it. But the street scenes, um, I don't live in one of those houses. I don't live in a terrace house. <laughs> <laughs> um, I live at the top of a very long street leading up to a station, but there are a lot of terrace houses tend to like a lot of the little quirky details you'll get from terrace houses so you know washing lines bin bins out the front milk bottles on the doorstep um you know odd sort of everydayness really of it um and I, I like to combine or add add those points of interest into my work because people do notice them actually um eventually they will notice a tiny little milk bottle on the on the doorstep or um you know a um a railing that's half half sort of bent they'll, they'll notice these things which is which gives me a lot of pleasure actually so yeah there's yeah. there's so much detail in those pictures isn't there it's something that I've noticed as well you know and I can imagine to own a piece that's got your your street scenes on no matter how many times you look at it you're going for a long time you're going to keep noticing more and more each time you look because of all the different layers of detail and intricacy within it 
Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, for me is the the use of the fabrics that I try and I try and gather up because um, when I'm having something printed, so for example, a street scene is is being printed, I have to think about how much detail a print of that is going to show. Um, so, for example, I tend to use quite a lot of uh, lace. Um, uh, bark cloth which is a quite a loose woven vintage fabric just because it gives me that texture that I want to show up in the printed version um, so I'm kind of always thinking about the whole process really unless of course it's a commission piece so it's a one-off piece then I don't have to think too hard about how it's going to translate into print um, but yeah it's just it's just nice to combine new fabrics with you know older older fabrics as well and I do sometimes dye fabrics as well if I, if I can't get the right shade of cream or brown I'll tend to dye bits of lace so it gives it that worn look as well so yeah. Now you mentioned the street scenes were quite organic as you, you built them up from one side to the other do you know what it's going to look like when you start or is it something that develops as you're going through the process? I tend, well, at the moment, I'm sort of stuck in one format. So, um, and I have done, I've done that sort of format for a couple of years, really. So I tend to include some type of hilly background, which again, I suppose is inspired from where I am. There's a lot, a lot of large sort of mountains where, where I live. So I like, I like something going on in the distance. Um, and then I tend to like to incorporate some sort of parkland. So, something with a bench or um, a hint of a duck pond or something like that, all in the background with the trees and various sort of foliage and then sort of bringing it further down onto the street level. Um, I tend to like groups, so groups of two or three houses at a time, just just so it's um, it just feels like everyday, everyday life, really. Um, I have been asked on a few occasions to do people, you know, customer streets and they've sent me um, uh, a picture, you know, a photograph of like a Google map of of their street and all the different houses. Sometimes, sometimes they work better than, uh, better if it's a a townhouse sort of situation as opposed to a row of bungalows. They're quite Mm. challenging. To be honest, I generally say no to things like that just because it doesn't really suit my of work um but one of the most lovely commissions i've done in the last sort of year or so was um it was it was a heritage piece for a customer and she wanted every single house she'd lived in from the house her dad built back in gosh i don't know when that would have been a long long time ago up to the house she's currently in she was a fairly old elderly ish lady so she'd lived in probably seven or eight different houses over over a lifetime and she wanted them all to sit um but uh, sort of sit in a row but in the background something to remind her of where that house was so a particular part of the town she wanted to incorporate in it and she also wanted the car the, the respective car at the time going along the road to match the house so it was a huge sort of project that took me a good few months. But at the end, it, it was really, really interesting to do. And she loved it. She really loved it. And she sent me photographs of all the houses. And then I used Google Maps to look at it now and see what was what's around the house. So, um, yeah, some, I mean, I think uh, I'm not sure if I'd do it again, but 
for that particular customer and because it was something new and it I had time to do that it was yeah it was a lovely it was a lovely piece yeah that sounds absolutely remarkable what what yeah. an amazing piece of work to have to have all your memories of where you've lived yeah. in the one place yeah I know and yeah it's um I've also done an, another street scene with the different seasons as well this customer wanted one starting in I think I started it in spring going along the, the season so all the the weather at the background you know in the sky the weather was very different over different parts of the house in different parts of the street so mm. so yeah that was a lovely idea and I had thought of doing that myself but didn't really have a a proper excuse to put so much time into something that may or may not have an you know have a have um have a job in the end it may just be for my own creativity but because this lady wanted it doing for herself then obviously I, I thought well I could justify spending the time on doing that so mm. yeah so that was lovely yeah, that was really... now you, you mentioned there that one piece had taken you several months to create presumably you have multiple pieces of work all on the go at the same time um Yes, often I do, and it's often at the most busiest time of the year as well. It always works out that way. So my busiest time of the year is basically from now till um, Christmas. But it's sort of also when commissions tend to come in as well. <laughs> and I know the customers don't don't often appreciate um you know, when you're a maker and you're making towards, you know, the, in, towards the gift sector and all the rest of it. But some commissions I can I can put off and ask them if they wouldn't mind leaving it until spring. But yeah, often it's um, yeah two or three different commissions on the go, pinned up to the workshop wall so I can keep looking at them, doing a little bit here and there. But then uh, day to day, it's just uh, getting through the online orders really. So. Um, most people are happy to wait though really they, they don't mind but I think there's something quite special about putting an order in and then not actually seeing it you know for two or three or even longer months down the road it's it sort of makes it special which it is you know the commission piece is a special piece so. I'm, sh I'm sure they are you can't rush something like that can you no you can't uh, at all it's just it's yeah it's too frustrating and you can't I find I can't sew if I'm overly tired there's no point because the next morning I'll just look at the work I did the previous night and think no I need to, that needs to be started all over again so I've, I've it's taken me 15 years to work that one out but yeah it's um you know your limits basically and when you're a one-man band I think you know you have to be kind to yourself as well otherwise you you know it's pointless really so have you always been creative Kathy? Um, I think I have really, yes. So from being really little and, you know, sitting on my nana's knee and going through the button box, you know, a lot, lot of sewers and creative um, people will um, will have lots of early memories about where it all began. I think from, it wasn't even really what I could do with all these buttons. It was more where they came from, what garment, you know, they were used on. And obviously, you know, nana's button boxes. Gosh, some of those buttons were passed down the generations, you know, totally wasted on a three-year-old. But um, it was more sort of fingering through them, really, and imagining what I could make with them. Um, so, yeah, I have actually always enjoyed the process of making. So from starting off with initial, oh, 
that's nice I could I could maybe do that or even an idea that you haven't seen on the telly or in a book or whatever I've always liked the thought of how is that made um not even necessarily just from fabric just the whole process of photography engineering how products are actually made I've always been really fascinated with that that process so so yes I I have really um it can be quite annoying sometimes because (laughs) I always think oh I could have a go at that and never end up actually buying it so um I think now that I do know my limitations and you know I really love and appreciate other makers and really see how much thought and effort and love has gone into a, a piece so yeah yeah I've always been a maker I think I always will be actually so and, and at what point did you you go from presumably making things as a hobby to actually turning it into a business um it started really about 15 years ago um in an attempt to avoid going back into the world of finance I'd previously done a degree in engineering and product design which had a had a big creative element to it but um towards the end of my degree found it extremely boring um product design isn't quite as creative as you perhaps initially thought it was um so so left all left that side of my life behind for quite a number of years and and had it got a job in finance and then obviously had kids um and it wasn't until i was trying to hatch a plan to avoid going back to work <laughs> that i sort of thought about going back into something creative and um yeah just took a good few years whilst the kids were babies to relearn how to use my sewing machine really and and learn um what it was that made me happy in terms of textiles and sewing sewing two pieces of fabric together you know it's um and I think it really having kids really gave me that bit of breathing space to just refocus on that and thankfully my husband had just got a a small promotion so it took the financial sort of burden off me going back into work away so that was really well timed um yeah but I did take a lot of time working out who I was going to actually be sewing for uh, because obviously sewing for yourself is very different to sewing for somebody to encourage them to buy that product so did take a lot of time just doing my market research working out who was doing anything similar what they were pricing it at um so yes it really took quite a few years I would say but it was uh it did start locally I started selling my work at sort of local craft shows uh which started to pop up really because there was quite a few handmade magazines popping up on the shelves and tv shows and off the back of that makers fairs as well um they started uh, appearing for similar-minded people really um and that's how initially i got my work shown at the sort of local markets um but really the big drive was when the internet landed and it really uh, pushed my sales from being just locally to obviously worldwide so um yeah it was I, just started doing it at the right time I think so handmade was popping up in general people were trying to buy something that wasn't on the high street they were looking for something different you know people were people were sort of crying out for something a bit more unique and 
it was obviously off the back of that that the likes of Kirsty Allsop um other make other other sort of TV presenters uh, started to focus on the handmade element. So yeah, it was probably a little bit of being at, in the right place at the right time, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned about the fact that you'd had the breathing space of, of, of starting a family and the fact that you didn't need to rush straight back to work. I guess an awful lot of people at the moment in our current situation have had the same kind of breathing space but for different reasons and um may well be looking to think you know maybe I could do something on my own in the craft business world as well um rather than returning to an office environment or whatever mm-hmm. what what advice would you have to somebody who perhaps is is thinking about following your in your footsteps it's i'm no expert and it's something that i that i learn you know and um, try and focus on a lot of time and energy on but I think my main the, the, my main moment the biggest moment when I realized uh, that I had something that people were interested in was when I acknowledged the fact that my market was a particular type of person so rather than making for people who uh, weren't similar to me so maybe working on an idea that was a bit more quirky and aimed at a, a younger market and not being happy actually making that product focus on who you would like your market to be so I suppose once I worked out that my market was mainly women mainly aged 30 plus mainly nature lovers and fellow creatives or sewers I sort of knew who I was sewing for then, so I could really um, make sure that every time I sat in front of my design desk, I had those people in in my mind because really I'm one of those people. Um, and I would think, well, would I would I be attracted by that piece? You know, would I would I like that? And if the answer is yes, then I knew there was something in in it if it was mm, it's okay it's a bit it's a bit bright it's a bit gaudy then generally not um I spent a lot of years fighting against that really I didn't want to fit into a particular um area but once I discovered you know the country living magazine and the shows that they put on I thought thought this is where I this is where I need to be this is where I need to sew for the you know the sorts of people who like quality handmade products with a feel of nature that's that's where I I need to be so I think what I'm really trying to say is know who your market is um and then really the rest is isn't straightforward but it's easier because you don't waste much as much time um making for some making for somebody who isn't actually going to be interested in your work and of course making for somebody who you know are going to appreciate your work they will also be happy to pay the price that you're you have worked out it has to be priced at um that that again is something that i struggle with not quite as much now but the beginning was really difficult to price my work um knowing my worth was was a was a biggie as well but i think really that that is the the biggest piece of advice is to know who you you're making for um the the other the other point is is that 
and I never really worked this out at the beginning, but as a maker, you will spend an awful lot of time thinking, drawing, making and remaking and then working out your prices, remaking based on your new price. Um, and that process can take months and months and months just for one particular product. So it can be a really time-consuming process. But if you're trying to make any sort of money from being a maker, it's really important that you do that. Um, so I have two elements to the business. I have the staple products, which, for example, things uh, that end up being a printed version, say the lanterns or um, the the lampshades that I make that are all prints of my original embroideries. They, they're a product that I make the proper uh, profit on. The rest of my work, the original embroideries, I don't really tend to make an awful lot of profit on those because it takes so long to make those you know, pieces. Um, but they're aimed at a particular type of customer, those who are generally are sewers themselves or just want the the original embroideries. So the two sort of offset each other, really. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice is to just know who you know, know your market. Absolutely. And, and mentioning that the pricing thing, I, I certainly know that an awful lot of makers do undervalue their worth when it comes to selling their work because I guess they they think that a lot of people who might be buying their products ha- just don't understand how many hours and and how much thought and effort goes into producing their work at the end of the day. It's just not a matter of simply buying raw materials and throwing it together. There's so much more involved, isn't there? Yeah, there there is. You you you're basically paying for well, in my case, probably twenty years of of mistakes of of uh of just educating myself really i mean my sort of design expertise goes back to sort of when i was 18 and you know i did a degree in product design and that whole that what i'm doing now some elements of it i have learned from from my years as a student um and also it's just having this it's always the time people people pay for somebody else's time that is the most expensive part of the whole process and and yes people can try and try and do it themselves and I, I have done that you know on occasions try to have, have a go um but you soon realize that it's not it isn't as easy as throwing things together and I, pe- I think some of the people that come on well all the people that come on the workshops that I hold soon realize that you know a whole day can be spent on one tiny eight by eight piece of fabric and it's still not be finished you know mm. so um it is it, it, it's it's having confidence in your abilities really and at first it, it took well it took me oh gosh probably a good eight to ten years to realize my, my worth um but yeah it's it sits a bit more comfortably with me these days but I still don't take it for granted and I still really struggle with with pricing sometimes I cringe when I when I work out how much something should should be charged you know for a customer but um, they pay it and you know and for that I'm very grateful. Absolutely now you mentioned there about your workshops Uh, presumably um, that's been hit by the current Covid situation. Yeah so it's it's really really 
uh, really sad, but I know it's we're all in it. But this year, 2020, was going to be my busiest year to date of workshops. I've only been doing the workshops for about five years, but over the years I've built up enough confidence and other uh, workshop companies have got to know of uh, that, I, you know, that I do teach now. So um, this year I was away for a good half half of the year, really, with planned workshops and, and you know, that sort of thing. And obviously they all had to be postponed. Um, so a lot of them have been pushed on to next year. But again, we, we still don't really know how that's going to, to work out. And um, some of a lot of the ladies who attend the workshops tend to be of an older age group as well. I would say a good sort of 60% tend to be over 60 years. So, you know, I obviously I want to keep those those ladies as safe as possible. So uh, we're just going to see how it how it works out. But yeah, I've really missed really missed not seeing them all because it's it is a lovely, lovely way to spend a day. And I get so I learn so much myself from the workshops um, just by being around other fellow creatives, really. It's uh, yeah, but we'll keep our fingers crossed. It'll all it'll all come right in the end. Yes, absolutely. Let's hope so. <laughs> now, your your normal working environment, of course, is your beautiful studio in your garden. And I've seen photos of it. It is remarkable. I'm sure there's an awful lot of people that would uh, give their right arm to have such Aww. a beautiful place to work. Yeah, it's. I am really lucky, but it was never... It, it, when we moved into this house, it didn't look like the workshop didn't look like that it was pretty grim it was it wasn't insulated properly it wasn't finished you know it was made actually for um for somebody's mum to move into as and when she needed it but they, they moved house before uh, they sort of had time to probably finish it so one year probably oh, a few years ago now about three years ago I saved up all all the profit from the previous year's work and I spent spent it all just doing my workshop up Oh, it was just, it was just fantastic. A proper roof. I got rid of the mice. I got <laughs> proper insulation. I got a big Velux window put in it. Oh, it's, yeah, I really, really love it. And I know I'm so lucky to have it. Um, yeah, really lucky. So it's, it, the photos you'll have seen of it, that isn't day to day. It's generally really, really tidy. <laughs> lots and lots of piles of fabric strewn everywhere but I, I'm not I'm certainly not a mess uh, not a neat worker at all and I think a lot of people who deal in fabric especially they'll have their own stashes of fabric um uh and you know live in a permanent state of disarray really but that's, I think that's how we, we carry on being creative you, you can't can't be creative in a in a tidy environment well I don't believe anyway well so. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that <laughs> yeah, that's my excuse, really. yeah life's too short to tidy up anyway so <laughs> now yeah. what, what what does the future hold for you and for dear Emma oh gosh oh my gosh I've no idea to be honest um I still really want to carry on what I'm doing in some format um I probably won't exhibit at, at shows um, as as much as I used to do. Um, much as I absolutely love that side of the business, actually interacting and you know taking people's money and seeing seeing how delighted they are with the work. Um, it it is it it does mean I'm away from home an awful lot, um, and I would rather spend that time 
going away to teach, I think, rather than um, coming home totally wiped out for a week because it, it really does take it out of you as well. And obviously it's just me doing it. I may have my mum and occasionally my aunties to help at certain times of the year. So, for example, Christmas time, I have them come and help. But um, it's really about keep just to keep focusing on what I'm doing and just keep getting better and better, really. Um, probably reduce the amount of products down a little bit um make it a little bit more tighter but I think just really keep focusing on, on what I'm doing um but yeah the workshops are great I, I absolutely love doing those and I get often get invited to embroiderers guilds to do talks and um sort of small workshops with them and, and that's great because I get to go all over the country um meeting you know people from the, the guild so I think I think especially with the uncertainty of next year and subsequent years I think I'm just going to keep it quite straightforward and just keep keep doing what I'm doing well I certainly speaking from my own point of view very much look forward to seeing what lovely lovely works of art that you create in in the months and years to come and thank you so much Kathy for speaking to me for making stitches it's been a real joy Oh, no, thank you so much for asking me. What a treat it was to speak to Cathy. I loved hearing about how her business has developed over the years and found her business tips really helpful. If you'd like to see Cathy's work, you can find her at Dear Emma Designs on social media. I'll also include a link to her website in the show notes for this episode. And as for the name of her business, I did ask her off mic about the name Dear Emma, when her name's actually Kathy. It's named after some very good friends of hers who are called Emma, just in case you were wondering. Thank you, Kathy, very much for speaking to me for making stitches and for being so generous with your time. And thank you to you two for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to leave a review or rate it on your favourite podcast app, that would be really helpful to help spread the word about making stitches. And I'd be very grateful indeed if you could do that for me, please. All being well, I'll be back again in two weeks' time with another chat with an inspiring maker. My name's Lindsay and this podcast was recorded and edited by me. You can also find me on my blog, Postcard from Gibraltar. Thanks again for listening and until next time, keep safe and enjoy your crafting. Music